meat of the podcast. Wait, have you ever have you ever caught your have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. 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 Shit feel like I won't ever make it home Traffic's backed up, I got to get off of this road Flipped on the gas, I swear to God, I'm in my zone From St. Petersburg in Brooklyn, this is She's in Russia, I'm Smith And I'm Lily, who never gets to say anything <laughs> Lily doesn't you get to be intro. quiet. That was all. <laughs> all right. Uh, what, what's today's episode about? Okay, I'm really excited about today's episode. Today we are doing a part of our literary series. Yeah, it's part of our literary series. We get to talk to another uh, contemporary Russian author and then hear uh, an excerpt of her most recent novel being read. So it's a reading and an interview. The author is Alisa Ganieva. Alisa is originally from the Russian Republic of Dagestan and is based in Moscow. She's both a literary critic and an author of multiple novels and stories. Today we're featuring an excerpt from Alisa's latest novel entitled Offended Sensibilities read by the translator Isaac Stackhouse-Wheeler. Isaac's translation of this excerpt is available in digital readable form at apophony.com, A-P-O-F-E-N-I-E.com. Apophony is a quarterly online literary journal founded in 2017. Its mission is to promote underrepresented voices and share stories that provoke the reader to engage with both their interior lives and the material world. Its name comes from the Czech word for apophonia, that is, the tendency to search for hidden meanings in unrelated patterns. They explore both the triumphs and shortcomings of language compelled by the need to define and attribute meaning to our lives. So if you want to go read other good excerpts and stories and poetry, uh, go ahead and check out apophony.com. Smith, is it okay if I start? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So the first question I wanted to ask is referring to an interview that I read of yours from back in 2015. You were talking about the transformation of society in Dagestan and like how you had noticed particularly a transformation like Islamification and a particular change in the role and perception of women in society this like move away from a a previously matriarchal society and all of that was extremely interesting to me I didn't know any of that and it was like very enlightening and I'm wondering if you could Tell us, like, summarize that and tell us if that's something you're still interested in writing about and still focusing on. Uh, yes, so, but I have to say that uh, though I started my literary career writing about Caucasus, about this multi-ethnical Muslim populated um, outskirts of Russia, so that I was even called post-colonial author, I can say that 
Dagestan and Caucasus in general is a very vivid reflection of the bigger Russia and Russia in general. So all the processes that are going on in Dagestan, maybe excluding this Islamic aspect, really are vivid in Russia in general as well. I'm talking now about this past and history becoming a new center of gravity in society. Everybody is talking about our past. Everybody is searching for some recipes and for some reasons to be proud of um, one's nation, not in the future, not in the present, which is not very optimistic and bright, but in the past. And we can see it in the official rhetoric and even in the freshly introduced criminal articles, uh, which is the thing that I'm talking about in my new novel. So in my first two novels called Mountain and the Wall and Bride and Groom, I'm reflecting, I'm depicting this Dagestani society where the conservative and traditional patterns of behavior and lifestyle are being resurrected. When women, which used to be much more liberated in the past, are now turning into these very um, Eastern, so-called Eastern creatures, passive creatures, which is very contrary to the internal spirit of the local women. Religion, which used to be very superficial, is now returning in its uh, most radical masks. And this is something which is bothering me. And, and also now when I uh, stepped out of this setting, the Dagestan setting, when I'm now for the first time writing a novel about Russia in general, about some provincial town somewhere in Russia, I'm again talking about this traditional and absurd models of life returning into the, our reality, into 21st century, when gossip, when reporting, when denouncing on each other, when snitching on each other is becoming uh, popular and fashionable again. And this excerpt that Isaac Wheeler um, has translated, it's a chapter from my new novel, which is called Offended Sensibilities or Hurt Feelings which is a wording from the new criminal article, which is called um, Offending Sensibilities of uh, Religious Believers. And so I'm, I'm uh, talking about these situations when very subjective and very absurd reasons are found and legally and officially are stated in order to smear and arrest people. And these are real cases. And uh, the number of people arrested on these cases is increasing unfortunately. Though there are many other reasons and causes uh, to do it, because the Russian legal system is a little bit broken, and it is arranged in a particular way, so that whoever can be accused of whatever, if you like, and at the same time, everybody is guilty and everybody is innocent, and it's a very subjective thing to decide who is and who is not. And so it's, um, it's a chapter about history partially because um, it features a widow of a local regional minister who is a principal of a local school. So she's a part of this um, big state corruption system and she's actively um, participating in different sorts of corruption and misdemeanor. So she's searched by interrogators. She's legally searched, not for her real crimes, but for some absurd crime are uh, for, um, it is called rehabilitation of Nazism. It's, it's 
uh, so rehabilitation of Nazism is an official formula of this new law, new criminal article, which was introduced like four years ago. And it says that misinterpretation of Soviet history during the World War II, especially in public, can be punished by from two to five years of imprisonment or by a big penalty. And there were just two or three cases so far in real life. But in my novel, I'm taking this a little bit grotesque and impressionistic look and angle to reflect this present today Russia. It's, it's quite a difficult thing to write about something which is not yet ready, which is, not, uh, which is still unraveling um, in front of your eyes. And that is why maybe in Russia, in, in Russian literature nowadays, there are so many novels about our history, about our 30 or 40 or 100 years ago past and uh, very few novels about what is going on today in Russia. Maybe because you need a special language to talk about present day, maybe because it's hard to formulate your own relation to what is going on outside your window. Uh, so I tried to do that. Going back to, I have one question about maybe like your earlier writing when you were still focused on the Caucasus. I was watching some of the videos that are in English on your website, and it, it kind of seemed to me like at times you had positioned yourself maybe as the face of day-to-day Dagestani life. Like you had mentioned how a lot of the stories that came out of the Caucasus were always from a soldier's point of view, and you were really aimed at kind of representing a more like natural life. And I was curious if there were any uh, unforeseen consequences of positioning yourself as a voice of Dagestan. Yes, it's um, being a voice of something is a tricky thing because you drag too much attention from both sides and from negative and positive side. It's my problem. And at the same time, it's my advantage to be focused from uh, this angle, from the angle of relatively peaceful routine life and not uh, direct battles between uh, soldiers and locals, uh, policemen and rebellions. So I'm writing about hidden conflicts, about uh, rumors going on, about families splitting and arguing about um, views on religion, for example, uh, about marriages conducted and, and spoiled. Of course, there was different feedback, including negative one. And you have to keep in mind that readers in Caucasus are very still used to traditional literature. They're writing and reading uh, from these canonical standards when you have positive protagonists and very distinct evil characters which are battling and when you have a very undubious patriotic view on your motherland. And they deemed that my writing is too critical, too ironic I'm really poisoned by this postmodernism and irony and uh, all these modernistic canons of literature, which is are still very alien for Caucasus. I, I do want us to get back to the story, and we will definitely. But I just wanted to move back a little bit further. And sorry if this is like repeating, making you repeat something you've said a lot. But about the debut prize that you won in 2009. 
Mm-hmm. So, okay. So the, okay. the it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's something that I'm sure you've talked about a lot, but just for our listeners, you were writing with a male pseudonym and again, like writing about the Caucasus at that time. And then you went to receive this prize. You won this prize for one of your stories and turned out you were this woman, young woman under 25. You won like an under 25 prize and everyone was shocked, Mm -hmm. right? Yes, you're right. So can you just, can you talk about the choice that you made to use a male pseudonym about that choice and what changed or did something change, I'm assuming, after you revealed your true identity? Yeah, I, I really, I really have to repeat myself here. Yes, I wrote my first long story. It was called Salam Dalgat. It was like nine years ago, and I wrote it under male pseudonym. And there were several reasons uh, for doing that. Uh, first of all, I was published as a critic. I didn't want to reveal my personality. I, I, I wanted to hear very objective and clear judgment and assessment of my work. Also, it was a psychological shield. And also, when you are creating a new personality and you write uh, the first hand gender or sex you are thinking of is male uh, sex, not female sex. We have the, all sorts of stereotypes against so-called female literature, women's literature, which is considered to be pulp fiction, uh, melodramatic uh, fiction for housewives and so on. So I wanted to battle these stereotypes. And also the world uh, I was depicting, a very male-dominated world of very harsh and brutal tensions between different branches of Islam, between relatives, uh, between different gangs on streets, and, and also... I was writing about feudal society where every member of bureaucratic system, every statesman, and maybe it's true for Russia in general as well, doesn't consider himself to be a server, a servant of people. Everything was so far away from what is supposed to be uh, literature written by a woman. <laughs> so I, I, um, I chose this male pseudonym and it happened to be a life-changing decision because when my identity was revealed, of course, there was a big outrage and uproar and maybe some uh, sadness on some people's part because some of them, especially my countrymen, said that and wrote that a girl from a good family didn't have any right to depict this street colloquial language and dialogues and to delve into this male-dominated world, which is tabooed for women. And others were really sure that I'm some bearded stranger, some savage from Caucasus. This is also a very colonial view on, <laughs> on inhabitants of these fringes of, of the country. I have just a very short question. When you were accepting the debut prize, the organizers knew that you weren't a man, right? Or did they not know either? Um, at first, nobody knew that. Uh, so there was a very big competition, like 50 or 60,000 manuscripts. And then there was a long list consisting of 100 authors. And I went to the press conference announcement of this long list. And I remember that the judges were talking about this uh, new author I, I had created. And they didn't <laughs> know, of course, that I was present. 
And then the shortlist was announced and it was a huge competition. And again, all the talk was about this particular author and new author. And and then I had to create false email and ICQ. <laughs> we still had ICQ accounts those days. And I had to find a portrait, a picture of the, of the, of the man. I was asked to send it all. And then I was asked to send my passport details because all the shortlisters were invited to Moscow to participate in the master classes and work in the creative workshops and to discuss their manuscripts with the members of the jury. And then I, I realized that maybe it's it's time to uh, to open up before the organizers at least. So I told everything to to, to the director of the prize. And she she was she was outraged as well. She said, "Why? How did you how did you manage to to lie to me?" Uh, she was really very experienced editor. She worked in a literary magazine for twenty or thirty years, and she boasted that she could define the gender, the the age, even marital status of the author just <laughs> from from reading one page of of his or her. Fiction, and she couldn't uh, say that I, I was um, a, a, a female author. So she was really disillusioned in, in her own talents. <laughs> and, um, oh my God. And then she said that, okay, we will not say anything to the judges. And so we'll say that this, uh, this boy, he got stuck uh, in some, um, on, on his way to Moscow, that he will be here, but he's, he's coming. And you'll be instead of him as a critic, just representing the region or something. So oh I did it God. for two or three days. And that only on the day of uh, announcement of, of the winners, the judges knew that it was me. And I remember that they were really emotional. And one of the judges, he started reading my manuscript again and again in order to find the tokens of um, the female pen to, to style, female style. And he found some part where I was describing a wedding scene and dancing and a special um, adorned uh, stick, adorned with some sort of textile, uh, which is passed from one dancer to another dancer, and it is an ethnical thing there in Dagestan. And so I, I named the, t the, the textile. Uh, I, I, um, I make a notion of the specific name of, the, of this textile. And he said, here is the token of a female style. Oh a man God. would have never mentioned uh, the name of the textile, so <laughs> oh my God, I should have known. <laughs> yeah. That wow, I'm like okay. It, would you say that that kind of? I promise this is the last question about this, and we'll move on to something that's more interesting to you. But um, would you say that that like obsession with biographical detail of the author of a text is some kind of is is that an important part of Russian literary criticism right now. I mean, I, I'm, I fe I'm feeling like surprised by that. So in, in, in Russian universities, when teachers, when uh, professors are talking about Russian classics, they always talk about writers' biographies, about their sufferings and marriages and deaths and births. And I noticed that in U.S., for example, um, the center of gravity lies in uh, the field of texts, first of all. So you read and discuss texts and maybe you can discuss biography as a matter of second importance. Yeah, yeah I would agree with you. So there was uh, quite 
a big attention towards my personality and that is that was part of the reason I took pseudonym I didn't want to uh, create this context around my my uh, my long story I wanted some clear response and that's it <laughs> it's like the male author can be invisible but the female author has to be like yeah yes yeah, wow. you're right I've, yeah that's I guess I guess that that doesn't surprise me that much based on my experience. I like the Russian literature class that I took in Russia. We, I remember being surprised more by the fact that instead of reading particular texts, it was a 19th century literature class. And instead of like focusing on, you know, a particular text and then like really digging deep into it, each week we covered a different author and we would just talk about his whole, uh-huh. his normally, entire, uh-huh. you know, works. Yeah, it's it's yeah, very t- like, typical. Uh, if you can read parts of it, that would be great. If you can read everything that they've ever written, that would be great <laughs> this week. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about this offended sensibilities, hurt feelings law. For one thing, I just want to make a side note. I am assuming that is the same law that was used um, to uh, try Pussy Riot. Is that right? Yes, okay. you're right. Okay, so... In your novel, since we have this one chapter, we have this chapter that focuses really specifically on the incident of the retelling or the misretelling, according to the law, of a part of World War II. And is that like, is that the subject of the novel or is the novel more focused on the law in abstract and then you do different concrete examples, not everything related to, to the war? Uh so this novel is uh, structured partly maybe as a pen poison novel, partly as a neo-noir detective. So it starts with a very rainy evening and a person riding a car and um, accidentally driving into an unknown person who asks for a ride. And then he suddenly dies and then he appears, he turns out to be a regional minister. And then uh, it turns out that he kept receiving anonymous blackmail letters. And so it's all, it's all about this typically Russian provincial town burning in this epitome of snitching and reporting on each other. And when almost all of my characters are receiving these strange anonymous letters or notes or messages, and some of them are arrested, and there are all these different pretexts for these arrests, and many of these characters are not that sympathetic or not that cute. And many of them are really um, guilty of something, but they're accused of something different, usually. And that is the essence of today's Russia, when even guilty people or statesmen, uh, even people who are indulging themselves in corruption, if they are arrested, they are arrested for some subjective reasons, because... Um, they quarreled with somebody or they lost their benefactors from above or somebody more strong than they are didn't like them. And these freshly introduced laws, they are aggravating this divisiveness in society. So um, it gives every citizen a leverage to sink his neighbor or his enemy to report on somebody. and. So finally, of course, this detective plot line is unraveled and the character who is guilty in, in writing these messages is found in the final chapter of my novel. 
But it is not really the point because reporting is continuing and blackmailing is continuing. And you know that, for example, homosexuals are persecuted in Russia or those who think uh, differently, um, act differently, who engaged in different street protests. And usually they are denounced for something something very different from the real reason of their persecution. Uh, for example, one of their well-known theater directors is arrested for his thefts or economical crimes. Um, or um, another uh, person, uh, he's a teacher of history, by the way, he's a real person um, from one of the Russian towns. He was kept in prison for almost two years just for expressing his attitude towards uh, Stalin purges of the 1930s in Soviet Union. So 1930s purges is the topic which our officials are trying to avoid because history is becoming a new ideology. Patriotism is becoming a new ideology. So accusing the wrongdoings of the Soviet leaders is interpreted as treason and anti-patriotism, which is already a crime, which is becoming a crime. So my novel is about this this atmosphere mainly. And of course, I, I, li- I like to build a plot which is interesting to, to follow for, for my readers. So it has this detective bent. But my main purpose is reflecting the atmosphere. And so I'm really grateful to Isaac Wheeler, who translated one chapter, but maybe it gives some taste of the novel in general. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to hear an excerpt from Elisa's novel, Offended Sensibilities, read by its translator, Isaac Stackhouse-Wheeler. excerpt from Offended Sensibilities, a novel by Elisa Genieva. The three law enforcement men had already been clicking around the parquet of the downstairs rooms for quite a while. Two citizens deputized to witness the search trudging along behind them, gaping at the fancy decor of the Lamsen house. What kind of bird's that? the investigator inquired, jabbing a Sevres porcelain sculpture of what looked like a peacock with the tip of one fat finger. The firebird. You'll find it doesn't have any orifices, answered the ruffled-looking widow, sunken deep in the leather chair in the living room, wrapped in the black woolen shawl she'd recently snatched from its hanger. Don't you worry, we're not going to go poking around up its ass, giggled one of the three. The slouching witnesses had shyly slipped off their shoes in the entryway, and Mrs. Lamson glared disdainfully at their stretched, worn-out socks. The law requires two looky-loos, so they grab some trash that just got locked up at the next precinct, and that's what passes for oversight, she thought, gathering her shawl tighter. She just couldn't figure out what these investigators wanted from her. The suffocating horror of falsified documents from her school being laid bare had already dulled, and now she just felt chilly and run down. 
They dumped out the squat bookshelf and little volumes, unread by anyone, tumbled to the floor like windfall nuts, with a crackling of shells and a rustling of pages. If Sapakian is the guilty party, what does any of this have to do with me? Mrs. Lamson asked the investigator, yet again. Sapakian was the history teacher at her school. He'd been working there for fifteen years. He never made any trouble or wheedled for a raise. He carted the kids around on field trips to the woods or the nearby lakes, and helped out the winners of local contests. Well, now it turned out he was a criminal, that he'd falsified history. Her sinews nodded with indignation. How dare they drag the inconsolable widow of the esteemed Andrei Ivanovich Lamzin out of bed over some worthless mediocrity of a teacher? The mustached investigator was being polite about it, bowing to the lady of the house and keeping his tone gentle, but he was putting the screws to her. Once again, Mrs. Lamzin, I am deeply sorry for your loss, and I apologize for intruding while you are still grieving, but this can't wait. I repeat, your teacher is under arrest, and you two slap those scripts together yourselves. Look, that's your signature. He ungallantly chucked a file in her lap, a script for a week-long national history event at her school. There were two authors, her and Sapakin. Her sprawling signature was right there, complete with a ripple of hunchbacked flourishes and the cursive L sprawling like a drunken accordionist, unfurling across every page. Sapakin wrote all of that himself, Mrs. Damson retorted, honestly. But you collected the extra pay together, the investigator asked with a smile. That damn historian. How could he have put all this hogwash on her? Not that she had any right to complain. She'd let it by her without reading it. The widow scratched her suddenly perspiring nose, recollecting that ill-fated school event. It seemed like everything had gone without a hitch. It was part of a month-long military education campaign, complete with thunderous quiz competitions like The New Martyrs of Our Lands and The Battle of Stalingrad, and a roaring patriotic singing contest called The Motherland is Calling. The sixth and seventh graders sang a Soviet classic, The March of the Artillerymen. Artillerymen, Stalin gave the order. Artillerymen, our fatherland is calling. The eighth and ninth graders were given something a little more contemporary. We're with you, Uncle Vladdy. We would have peace on this, our land. But if the commander-in-chief... Orders us into the final battle. We have not forgotten, shouted the posters of the present. Arise, great country, echoed the slogan of the past. The ladies from the Department of Education had praised Mrs. Lamson to high heaven. What on earth had gone wrong? Without switching off that smile, the investigator sat at the little round lunch table, right under the portrait of the late Mr. Lamson, and ostentatiously stretched out his seemingly elongated legs, the very picture of contentment. Let's take it from the top, Mrs. Lamson. We have in our possession a video recording of the event, which one of the parents duly presented to us upon request. Mrs. Lamson half-closed her eyes, recalling how packed the hall was, clogged with all those ludicrous little mommies and daddies, and those smartphones, like sunflowers turning on their five-fingered stalks to follow the action on the stage, where their rotten spawn were knocking around in red-starred Soviet army hats. She recalled the dancing wheat stalks representing the harvest, the display of wall newspapers, and the agitprop chant competition. 
Sedition had apparently wormed its way into some mouse hole in all those festivities. But how? For example, consider this theatrical performance by the 10th graders, representing the fascist invasion of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The investigator's voice was measured, distinctly pronouncing every syllable. What precisely is that Sapakin of yours saying backstage? What? Mrs. Lamson asked, swaying forward in alarm. After the signing of the criminal Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and the secret agreement to divide Europe, how do you understand the word criminal? Mrs. Lamson blinked uncomprehendingly, shaking a bit of fluff loose from under her gummy eyelashes. It means, she said at last, that the pact was a mistake. How can you say it was a mistake, demanded the investigator, his voice growing more serious. You're a historian, too, and there you go, right there with Sapakin. I'm not with him, answered the frightened Mrs. Lamson. That pact is why we got the Baltic region and Bessarabia back, our territory, occupied by Poland. When it comes to that secret agreement, there was no plan to divide Europe. We wanted to defend Poland, but Poland wouldn't play nice, and that's all there is to it, the investigator said, clearly reeling off words he had ready to hand. Meanwhile, his two assistants opened and closed the doors of a carved wooden bar where bottles of 40-year-old Dalmore, complete with the silver deerhead label, were kept. The witnesses immediately started eye-fucking the trove of expensive alcohol. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Yes, of course, Mrs. Lamson answered. But I would still like to call my lawyer. I was under the impression we'd already addressed that issue, said the investigator with a frown. No lawyers during a search. The right to a lawyer is academic at the moment. Yes, you can have one present, but you have to invoke it when we formally present our warrant. Which, as you'll recall, we didn't do. But I heard, Mrs. Lamson began, starting to sound like a school principal again. You've clearly heard a lot of things, but none of them matter, the investigator interrupted, rapping on the tabletop with his fingernails. What matters is that there are unprecedented criminal acts going on at your school, and you just let it happen. Or worse. Out of respect for your loss, we're just warning you for now. This is all preventative. So I would advise you to meet us halfway here, Mrs. Lamson. He rubbed his shiny boot tips together, and the spots of light cast on them by the unexpectedly bright morning ran together like fresh egg yolks. The pages from Sapakin's file crackled loudly in his rough-skinned hands. Outside the window, the day was ripening. Light was pouring in, and the late Mr. Lamson's widow was struck by an unbearable craving for some fried ham. Fatty, dripping with butter, sprinkled with cheese crumbs, drenched in horseradish and garlic and tomato sauce, served on hot wheat bread. Who gives a damn that it would go straight to the stubborn dough on her soft hips, that the staring pits of cellulite on her backside would just keep getting deeper and darker, that sugar would bounce into her blood and crowd her veins with plaque? I am a distinguished teacher, Mrs. Lamson declared. I have served as a member of the regional assembly. I will punish Sapakin. We'll punish him ourselves, the investigator said with a smirk. In the meantime, we have a criminal case on our hands, and it's essential to determine your role in it. 
A criminal case, Lamson repeated, as if a fat brick wall had sprouted up between his words and her comprehension. Article 354, Clause 1, Part 2, explained one of the investigator's colleagues, his skinny legs measuring out the living room like a draftsman's compass. Knowing distribution of false information regarding the actions of the USSR during the Second World War. Committed in public. Involving an abuse of his position. Punishable by a rather fat fine. The confiscation of the perpetrator's income for a period of up to three years. Or up to five years of incarceration, said the investigator, smiling pinkly again and a ban from working in the relevant field for a period of up to three years, the field of education, in your particular case, since you're apparently an accomplice. I'm not, Mrs. Lamson screamed throatily. I never, I always. She was trying to stand up, but the armchair seemed to be chewing her up in its leather maw. A little whining gnat settled in her ear and buzzed like a thin, stupefying siren. The air around her grew thick as sauna steam, smearing the room with watery spots, and the boundaries and outlines of things blurred. One of the three was suddenly beside her, lifting a cup of water towards her nose. A silver cup for champagne, yanked out of her cupboard. What were they doing digging around in there? What were they looking for? Mrs. Lamson loudly gulped down a few mouthfuls of water and moistened lips that were now alien and shameful. All because of the pact, she gasped. The investigator's boots were now hidden under the table, laying low, lurking down there like some newborn beast in a forest burrow. Who says it's just because of the pact? asked the investigator, offended. You've got a scene where the kids played Germans freezing to death. Furthermore, according to your production, it took ten of our guys to take on two German soldiers, and in the middle of a winter storm... What were you using for snow? Styrofoam or something? White confetti? Mrs. Lamson was at a loss once again. She just kept quiet and waited for this man who'd made himself so comfortable at her table to explain everything to her. Ma'am, don't just look at me like a deer in the headlights, went the investigator, losing his composure, his voice speeding up like water boiling in a tea kettle. So, according to you, it was the winter that beat the Germans, huh? No, Mrs. Lamson answered, just in case, wincingly pulling the woolen shawl over her chin. That's a distortion of history. What don't you get? Continued the irate investigator. His hand slid along the smooth table, flexing, knocking the knuckles together, and rising onto its fingertips once again, like a Cossack posing in the midst of an energetic dance. What are you and your subordinate Sapakin teaching the children in your care? This is the next generation, the ones who will take the next watch. Are you teaching that it wasn't the great Soviet people that beat the fascists? Oh no, not the army, not the genius of our generals, just random chance, the winter and the snowstorms, is that it? That isn't what we meant, nothing of the sort, shouted Mrs. Lamson, catching her breath. You didn't mean it. You didn't want it. Yada, yada, yada. Our expert testimony says otherwise. What testimony? gasped Lamson. But one of the participants in this feckless search was already giving the investigator a soft folder wrapped in cords. He struggled with them for a moment, then quickly pulled out an important-looking sheet of paper, modeled with lines of text, and waved it in front of Lamson, 
who was half out of her mind by this point. This testimony proclaimed his little bewhiskered mouth. You will note that one of the signatories is a university professor, a far cry from that Sapakin of yours. At the conclusion of this document, he writes that the frosts did indeed strike early, in October of 1941, but this merely served to accelerate the progress of the fascist tanks, since they were no longer confined to the roads and could move freely. As early as that summer, General Zhukov led an ingenious counterattack near Yelenia, as a result of which the Germans became bogged down on the Eastern Front. And so on and so on. Yeah, here it is. The collapse of the Wehrmacht was not a result of the Russian winter, but rather of the heroism of the Soviet troops, the wisdom of their commanders, and the folly of Hitler's generals, who did not think to procure winter clothing and equipment. By inculcating the opposite impression in schoolchildren, the teaching staff of this school have flagrantly contradicted historical truth, cheapening the memory of the millions of Soviet citizens who sacrificed themselves. At that moment, the investigators stopped and neatly returned the document to its folder and grandly surveyed the assembled people. His two colleagues were glowing with satisfaction. The witnesses, those indistinct and indistinguishable persons, started getting bored, scratching their heads and shifting from foot to foot. One of the three law enforcement men had a tight grip on the widow's phone. They put her laptop in plain view, too. It slumped its gray plastic shoulders dejectedly on the daybed in anticipation of the moment when they'd steal away with it, into the unknown. It was brand new, not yet stuffed with gigabytes. The widow Lamzen used it to talk to her far-off son four times a week. All right, let's say Sapakin made a mess of things. I don't dispute that. I never liked him anyway, said Mrs. Lamson, and every layer of the armchair screeched plaintively beneath her. But this is me we're talking about. Me. When they use my school as a polling place, I run the whole show. I've got the best statistics in the district. Every election, I get them the right turnout for the right candidates. Those other principals get fired because they don't know how to handle the parents. But I'll have you know, I've been in my position for 15 years. I was awarded the... Yeah, yeah, we know, interrupted the investigator. That will all be taken into consideration. Maybe it will help you. But tell us about this teacher of yours. How could you leave the kids with a guy like that? You know there are all kinds of rumblings among the school kids, and they're viraling up the whole internet or whatever, listening to all kinds of loudmouth subversives from Moscow. Then all of a sudden, a teacher, a beacon of enlightenment and a pillar of the community, the one who's supposed to pull them out of the swamp, starts playing along with a pack of traitors. And it isn't some hired gun. He gets paid out of the government budget. He's a guy getting fed on government pork, and he just goes ahead and craps. Shits all over his motherland, offered one of the trio. Yeah, exactly. There's no other way to put it, said the mustached investigator, raising his eyebrows. Mrs. Lamson stared at those bushy brows with long gray hair scattered all through them, and suddenly realized that she had deeply and irrevocably put her foot in it. How could she have opened the gates to these boogeymen? How could she have allowed strangers into her home? Upstairs, in her bedroom, in an unlocked safe, her diamonds were glimmering away, and the antique pinfire cartridge revolver hanging in her late husband's office was worth more than many big city condos all on its own. What exactly was written in that decree of his? 
She was such a harebrained old lady. She hadn't even thought to look at their warrant. What if this whole thing was pure theater, a robbery masquerading as a search? She was alone, and there were five of them. They'd taken her cell phone. There was nothing to protect her. The guard that typically sat in a booth outside the house went on vacation right after Mr. Lamson's funeral, and he didn't suggest anyone to take his place. Mrs. Lamson had let the whole thing slip through her fingers, in one ear and out the other. As if that wasn't enough, Tanya, the maid, had the day off. Once again, she remembered the note she'd found on her desk at work. Was it really the maid who had contrived to slip her that hideous threat? The unknown author had warned her to expect guests, which meant they knew a search was coming, which meant they were rubbing their sweaty hands together in anticipation of Mrs. Lamson finding herself powerless. Tanya said that her first cousin once removed was a major. Did that mean it was her? The investigator started digging through his papers again, and his little buddies scattered into the corners of the room like frightened beetles. The hands of the clock above the bar had stopped at 3.30 yesterday, and Mrs. Lamson had lost any sense of time. She didn't know how many hours these strange guests had been going from room to room, or what they were looking for. It seemed like they didn't have a very clear idea of what might constitute evidence. Their hands were just scooping up everything that crossed their path. The mustached man shook his paper folder, and pages scattered, drifting away, sloughing apart like layers of cake that had yet to be glued together with frosting. Mrs. Lamson involuntarily licked her chops. All she wanted now was to be left alone so she could start pigging out properly. Her innards grumbled and whined plaintively, like a street dog, but this guy with the mustache was still going on and on about that damn history show. Do you agree that it was way out of bounds for your play to show us losing ten soldiers for every one Fritz did? What? asked Mrs. Lamson. Come on, just answer me. I will only answer with my lawyer present, the widow retorted acidly, as if talking through a toothache. The investigator exchanged looks with his colleagues and mockingly puffed out his chest. Well, there you have it. Only with a lawyer present. You and that lawyer of yours are going to work up a serious sweat looking for a way to explain this. It was about the strength of the Soviet army, Mrs. Lamson blurted out. There's a lot of us. Onward for the motherland. We've got the truth on our side. That's what it was about. We overpowered them. Ah, overpowered them, did we? The investigator drawled jeeringly. That's not what it looked like. It looked like we just drowned the enemy in corpses. The soldiers were just meat we didn't mind feeding to them. Oh yes, that's the most disgusting lie our enemies spread. But you, our teachers, picked up that lie and ran with it. I must say, Mrs. Lamson, I'm truly concerned about your pupils. How will they see the history of their own motherland after that event, which, I'm afraid, was nothing short of sabotage? Where can they dig up any pride in their ancestors and their country? This is how you get girls twerking in front of the eternal flame. What? whispered Mrs. Lamson, feeling childlike spite awakening inside her. Why do you keep going after me? What do you want from me? Go torture that fool Sapakin. I'm a distinguished educator. Distinguished, I tell you. Who sicked you on me anyway? What? What are you talking about? 
Listen, nobody's going to be sick on you, the mustache investigator exclaimed, half rising from his chair and even extending his arms toward her, like a demigod in a Renaissance fresco. This is about basic knowledge every citizen should have. Ten to one. That's a myth. Do you hear me? It's slander. Tell me, how many people did we lose in World War II? I'm tired, Mrs. Lamson answered. This isn't an oral exam, and I'm not your student. All the same, the mustached man said with a squint, nodding to the witnesses. Let's have one of you gentlemen answer. How many irreplaceable losses would you say the Soviet Union suffered during World War II? They smiled shyly. Twenty million? asked one of them, tapping his heel against the parquet floor. There! went the investigator triumphantly, shaking his finger. Do you hear what they're saying? Probably former students of yours. Some people say 20, some 30, some 40. They believe anti-Soviet propaganda. You get me? But it's garbage. Absolute garbage. He jumped to his feet and started walking around the room. Mr. Lamson attentively observed his trajectory from the portrait. The peacock also surveyed them from above, its beak gaping in astonishment, a mottled porcelain owl hiding beside it. You're just clueless. Citing those gigantic casualty figures isn't just ignorant, my dears. It's criminal, the investigator pronounced, and the errant witness blinked guiltily, his eyelids hopping up and down. The genuine figure is quite different, my clueless friends. Eight million and change, that's all. And that's counting everyone. Those who died from wounds, disease, and accidents. Those who disappeared. Those who were court-martialed and shot. Everyone. And that's the end of it. That's the end of it. That apparently took a lot out of him. He sank onto the daybed beside the confiscated laptop, which jumped slightly, like a little dog. Mrs. Lamson loudly swallowed the stinging spit that had accumulated in her mouth. For some reason, she wrapped the end of her shawl around her fist. Just tell me the truth, she said in a pained, detached voice. Who denounced me? We received complaints a long time ago, answered one of the three. Anonymous complaints. Of course, in accordance with law number 59, on citizens' petitions, we do not take anons into consideration. But this was an unusual instance. We were informed that you were not only condoning the falsification of history at your school, but that you were also... Something made the investigator hesitate before he got it out. Planning a murder... After these words, silence descended in the living room, and there was only a solitary ray of sun, uneasily fumbling with the windows, trying to grope its way home. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Big thank you on this episode to Alisa for taking the time to talk with us and, of course, writing the novel itself, which will be coming out sometime in the fall. Also, thank you to Isaac Stackhouse Wheeler for sharing his translation with us. And lastly, thank you to Caitlin, the editor-in-chief of Apophony. Again, go ahead and check them out at apophony.com, A-P-O-F-E-N-I-E. If you want to 
read more poetry, stories, etc. As always, be sure to subscribe to us on Twitter, Arena, and Telegram at She's in Russia. If you have a question about Russia, give us a call at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six, or you can also leave us a message on Skype at She's in Russia. Visit She's in Russia.com to sign up for our monthly image-based newsletter, and we will see you next week.